Thank you for checking out the sermon at Hope Church. We exist to connect people to live the life of a Jesus follower. We're excited that you came across this message and are tuning in. We just want to make you aware of a couple things before we get to the sermon. First, we'd love to connect with you. You can follow us on our social networks by searching at Hope Church LV. Also, be sure to check out our website, hopechurchonline.com. There, you have access to other resources, information about who we are, and where we're going as a church, as well as an opportunity to give to what God is doing through our church. Once again, thanks for checking out this sermon. Please let us know if there's any questions you have or any way we can come alongside you and your family. Enjoy the message. There is no perfect church. I'm going to say that again. There is no perfect church. If you ever think that you found one, do not join it. You will mess it up. Right? There is no perfect church. There never has been. Let me tell you why. Because the church is made up. Of people whose lives have been broken and devastated by sin and its consequences. They've been redeemed and forgiven through the blood of Jesus. And they've been made whole in Christ and then all put together inside of what we call the church. You take all of that brokenness, even though it's been redeemed and forgiven, and you put it all together, and it's never going to be a perfect place. Because the church at its core is a family. There are no perfect families. All families have issues. What, what separates healthy families from unhealthy families is how they deal with those issues, how they handle those issues, how they work through those problems, how they navigate through the difficult relationships and circumstances. We all have issues and problems. It's how we work through them together. And the same thing is true with the church. What separates a healthy church from an unhealthy church is how it works through those issues. And this is not a new thing. The church, since its beginning in the New Testament has always been a place of imperfect people living out community together. As a matter of fact, if you read Paul's letter to the church at Corinth, we call it in our Bibles 1 Corinthians. If you read 1 Corinthians, with every chapter almost, Paul is dealing with another issue that is going on. And you think, we got problems? You go home and read 1 Corinthians. Uh, 1 Corinthians deals with some stuff that would make all of us in the room blush with what's going on in this fellowship. They had some major serious issues in the life of the church. One of the issues is they had already, even though it hadn't been that long, they'd already begun to abuse and misuse a simple practice that Jesus had given to his disciples to be a time of community and celebration of the gospel. They'd taken that little practice and they had begun to abuse it. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is writing about this very practice. And he writes to them very specifically about their abuse of it. And and I just got to be honest, when I read 1 Corinthians, I'm glad Paul's not around today to write us a letter. I'm going to read you just a section of this letter, just this chapter, 
out of what we call the message paraphrase. It's, it's Eugene Peterson's message paraphrase translation of the Bible because it really graphically puts it in our modern-day language. Listen to this little section, verse 17 down to 22. He says, regarding this next item, <laughs> as if the ones he's already dealt with weren't enough, right? He's just going down the list and checking them off regarding the next item. I'm not at all pleased. Wouldn't you love to get that from the Apostle Paul? I am getting the picture that when you meet together, it brings out your worst side instead of your best. First, I get this report on your divisiveness, competing with and criticizing each other. I'm reluctant to believe it, but there it is. The best that can be said for it is that the testing process will bring truth into the open and confirm it. And then I find that you bring your divisions into worship. I'm sure they were so encouraged at this point. You come together and instead of eating the Lord's Supper, you bring in a lot of food from the outside and make pigs of yourselves. Paul was always politically correct. Some are left out and go home hungry. Others have to be carried out too drunk to walk. I can't believe it. Don't you have your own homes to eat and drink in? Why would you stoop to desecrating God's church? Why would you actually shame God's poor? I never would have believed you would stoop to this, and I'm not going to stand by and say nothing. That'll make you read 1 Corinthians a little different, right? Man, he, he's, he's going after them. Because what had happened is Jesus had given this incredible practice. This incredible practice that is supposed to emphasize the great core truths of the gospel. This incredible practice that is supposed to unite us in fellowship with God and, and unite us in fellowship with one another. They'd taken that incredible practice and they'd so moved and drifted from the meaning. And here's what I'm afraid today. Maybe not in the same way, but all across our country, people take, take part in what we now call communion or the Lord's Supper. And they do it, maybe not in the same way in practice or in action, but in heart. They've so moved from why Jesus gave us this practice. That at Hope, at least once every year in our study of, of the Lord's Supper, we go back to 1 Corinthians and we unpack some truths here so that we understand why we do what we do when it comes to the Lord's Supper. So today... As a family of faith, we're going to practice the Lord's Supper together. But I wanted you to hear the context in which we're reading the section that I normally read for you out of 1 Corinthians. I'm about to read, but now you got the context. It wasn't good. And Paul is writing them to say, hey, here's why we do this. So let's lean in before we take it and let's listen to what Paul says Beginning in verse 23. If you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Reading now from the New American Standard. Here's what he says. 
For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, and he just addressed how they'd been doing that, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. There's the instruction Paul gives them following the rebuke that he just written to them. Those two paragraphs that I just read, they go side by side. One ends in verse 22, the other one picks up in verse 23. There's this rebuke, and then he begins to instruct them. Out of this instruction, I want to answer two questions this morning. One of them is really an insignificant question, but I'm addressing it because it's a question that we get asked all the time here at Hope. I don't know of a dinner with the pastors that, that we have had where I have not been asked this question at least one time. So, so here's the first question. It's not, a, it's not a significant question theologically, but practically I want to address it. Here's the first question. When do we do this? Almost every dinner with a pastor, somebody says, you know, I've been coming home for a few weeks. We haven't taken the Lord's Supper. When do we do this? Because we are in our church, there are some people in our church. This is the first church you've ever been in. You came to Christ here. And so for all you know, we're normal. <laughs> how we do it is how it's supposed to be done. For others of you, you, trans, uh, you, were, you were moved into Las Vegas, you, you, you came here, you were transplanted from other parts of the, 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 the nation or the world, and you connected here at Hope, and you had a tradition in the church that you came from of how they practice the Lord's Supper, and some traditions practice the Lord's Supper every week, some do it once a quarter, some do it once a month, some people only do it once a year as a substitute for the old Passover in the Jewish calendar. So depending on the culture and tradition that you've come from, there are a lot of questions about how often we would do this. And what's unfortunate is, even though this is theologically a very insignificant question, it's a question where a lot of people divide. They get real divisive, and they bury their heels in over how often we're to do this. And, and to make the point, I want to read to you out of the Bible the only place where Paul ever addresses how often we're to do it. Look at verse 25. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Get ready. Here it is. As often as. And then he said it again in verse 26. For as often as. That's the only place in the Bible where clearly some people say, oh, but in Acts the Bible says they broke bread day to day and house to house. Well, it does say that. Number one, we don't know what breaking the bread was. Was that eating fried chicken or taking the Lord's Supper? We don't know. We can't be dogmatic. And if that's the case, they did it every day. So buckle up. <laughs> the only place Paul ever prescriptively talks about how often we're to do this, he just says, as often as you do it, do it for the right reason. So 
what we believe the scripture teaches is every New Testament local church has the right and authority to do this as often as they choose. They can do it every day. They can do it every week. They can do it every month. They can do it once a quarter. They can do it once a year. They can do it every other year. Every church has the authority. At Hope, we do it about three or four times a year. And we do that because when we do it, we do like we've done today. We dedicate the entire service, music, teaching, preaching to understanding why we're doing what we're doing. And every time, I know some of you that have been a part of Hope for a long time, you've heard me teach some of the principles that I'm going to teach this morning. You've heard me teach them before. And I know some of you are thinking, man, I got to, here we go again. I'm going to hear these same truths. But every time I teach this, every time in just about every service, somebody walks out and says, Pastor, for the first time in my life, I understand why we do this practice. I've never understood it before. So when it comes to when, we do it three or four times a year. Second question, this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Why? Why do we do this? Pastor, you tell us all the time here at Hope, Following Jesus is not about rituals and ceremonies, rights and uh, wrongs, do's and don'ts. It's not about practices. It's not about rituals. It's about a relationship with God and a relationship with one another and a relationship with the world. If that's true, what you teach us all the time, why are we doing this little ceremony? Why do we do this? Well, Jesus gave us this practice for a significant reason. And here, Paul is writing to this church in Corinth because they'd forgotten why we do this. And so we want to be reminded, and I want to give you four reasons why we do this. Here's the first one, then we're going to take it together. Number one, the Lord's Supper invites me to remember all the gospel has accomplished in the past. He said twice in these verses, verse 24 and 25, do this in remembrance of me. Say the word remember out loud. Remember. He gave us this practice for us to remember all the gospel has accomplished. Those of you who know me well know about my love for baseball. I love baseball. One of the things that I do when I went on vacation, we went, I went to some baseball games. I went to a couple of games by myself because nobody else in my family loves baseball that much. But that's all right. They can do something else. I'm going to a baseball game. I love baseball. One of the trips in my lifetime that I hope to make that I've never had the privilege to make to this point is to a little town in New York called Cooperstown. In Cooperstown, New York, resides the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Never had the privilege to go there. I'm I'm, going to, and that's one of the things on my bucket list in my lifetime to get to the National Baseball Hall of Fame. Have been to a lot of different baseball stadiums, but never been there. At the National Baseball Hall of Fame, they have all kinds of things there representing the game from the past. I I, I look so forward to being able to walk through that someday and, and see all of those things because they're all there to help you remember the history of the game, where it came from, what this game has meant, all the intricacies of the game. The National Baseball Hall of Fame is a memorial to the history of baseball. At an infinitely greater, in an infinitely greater way, what Jesus gave us in this practice 
is designed for us to stop what we're doing, take a minute, and remember all that Jesus accomplished on our behalf on the cross. It's a memorial. This isn't just something you rush through at the end of a service on your way out the door. This isn't an emotional pick-me-up. It's not a tradition that we do to check it off the list. Well, I did that this week. No, it's an opportunity for us to stop. Listen, if you go to the Baseball Hall of Fame and you just run through there and run out, you've missed the whole point of being there. You're to stop. Listen, don't go with me. I'm going to be there for days probably when I go. I'm going to read everything on every exhibit. Why? Because I want to just soak it in. Here's here's what we should be doing when we come to this moment. When we come to this moment we take these elements, we should stop and we should just soak it in. If we can walk through this without something inside of us being stirred because we're remembering all the glory and all the greatness and all the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Listen, something's wrong. We've missed it. He gave us this so that we could remember. Alan Redpath said it this way. I love this quote. It is the one who has given something for us at Calvary, asking each of us to remember his death, to put that at the very center of our Christian experience. It is he who loved us even unto death, calling us out from the busyness and often the barrenness of all our pressure and work that we might wait upon him in the stillness of our hearts and worship him. He points us back, not to, the, not to his life or example, but to that which is at the very heart of the Christian gospel. The atonement of the cross, the finished work of Calvary and the open tomb. Two major doctrines that are emphasized here. The bread emphasizes The incarnation of Christ. What is the incarnation of Christ? Listen, that God became a man. That simple statement ought to make us just shout hallelujah. God became a man. When we could not get to him, he came to us. The God that created everything you can see, taste, touch, feel, or smell took on humanity and he dwelt among us so much so ordinarily that there was nothing about him special that you would even recognize. God became a man. The Bible says in Colossians, in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You know what that means? Jesus is all that God is with skin on. Awesome. Then the great doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Christ. That he died for us. He died in our place. Listen, some people preach this doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus like Jesus died for us so we didn't have to. No, he died for us because we couldn't. There was nothing I could do to atone for my sin. There was no way I could earn or merit God's favor. Christ died. I love the way Paul wrote it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. After this rebuke letter, he wrote him another one in 2 Corinthians. I guess he kind of felt bad and thought he ought to encourage him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, look what it says. He made him who knew no sin 
to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Here's what that teaches us. All of us had sinned against the holy God and all of us deserved to die and spend eternity separated from God because of our sin. And there was nothing we could do to change that. But on the cross, Jesus came. God took on humanity, entered this world. Jesus took all of your sin and all of my sin on Himself. And on the cross, Jesus became sin for us. He paid the penalty of sin for us. He stood and experienced the full blow of the wrath of God against sin. Christ died for our sin, but He didn't stay dead. He rose again from the dead, having defeated death, hell, and the grave. And now the Bible says when you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we who were sinners now become the righteousness of God in Him. That does not mean that He sees me like I've never sinned. No, that's a cheap view of the grace of God. He sees me now as righteous as Jesus Christ Himself. Not because I deserve that. Not because I earned that. I've been given that by the amazing grace of God. And when we take this Lord's Supper today, we are remembering all that Jesus did on our behalf. We're remembering. Listen, don't ever come to this table. Don't ever walk in these doors and say, oh, that's Lord's Supper again. Don't you ever have that attitude. We are to remember the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, let's move on to the second one. Tell I hadn't had enough preaching in a few weeks, right? Let me give you a second one. The Lord's Supper allows me to proclaim the power of the gospel in the present. Somebody got it. The word proclaim. The Bible says in verse 26, look at it. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, he said every time you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death. The word proclaim is a word that means to declare openly, out loud, to make public, to announce. This word is used over and over and over and over and over again in the book of Acts to describe the disciples proclaiming the gospel, making known the gospel. You see, every time we come together like this, you know what it forces us to do? It forces us, even though at Hope, we love to do it every week. But Jesus knew the natural temptation of our heart was to drift. So here's what the Lord's Supper does. It forces the church to drag the gospel out front and center and say, here's the foundation on which we stand. We're living in a day in America where we'd rather preach pop psychology or five steps to help you feel better. We'd rather talk about political ideology. Listen, my heart's been broken in the last few weeks as I've watched some things politically roll out in our country. I've watched some videos that have been released recently about how the unborn are being treated in our country. I have been sickened to my stomach. As I watch the horrific, barbaric attitude that our country has towards life in our nation. But let me tell you something, and I mean this with all my heart. Even though I believe as Christians we ought to exercise our constitutional right to vote, we cannot vote our way out of this mess. But we can disciple our way out of this mess. 
You see, listen, Jesus gave us the real mission. The real mission is not to get in the pulpit and, and preach political ideology. The real mission is to preach the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and see lives radically changed from the inside out and to disciple them in their faith so they begin to understand a high view of God and a high view of the life that God created from its inception, from conception. And then when we begin to make disciples, let me tell you what begins to happen. Change people, change culture. That's what happened. Changed people, change culture. The enemy would love for us to take our eye off the ball of making disciples and put our eye on the ball of political agendas because that won't change anything. But let me tell you what will. The gospel. The only hope for our nation, the only hope for our city, the only hope for the world is the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something. That's all the hope we need. There's enough power in the gospel to turn the world upside down. Every time. We gather to take the Lord's Supper. We proclaim the gospel. I love what Oswald Chambers said. The creative power of the redemption of God works in the souls of men only through the preaching of the gospel. The gospel. Let me give you a third reason we do this. The Lord's Supper inspires me to celebrate all the gospel will accomplish in the future. You see, we're here today. We're going to take these elements and we're going to remember all that Jesus has done for us. And we're going to stand and proclaim the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its ability to change and transform lives. Let me tell you something else we're going to do. We're going to celebrate that this ain't the end. Let me show it to you in the text. Look at verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death. Oh, but look at the last three words. Until he comes. <laughs> you know what that means? Here's what that means. That means one day the Lord himself is going to descend from heaven with a shout. Hey. I'd be all right if he came right now. Let's just lean in and listen for the shout. One day the Lord is going to descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ are going to rise first, and we who are alive and remain are going to be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. One day Jesus Christ, just like he went up into heaven ascending through those clouds, one day Jesus Christ is coming again. And let me tell you something, on that day we won't need a memorial. We'll see him in person. First John says, we will see him just as he is. You see, I wouldn't have to go to a hall of fame and look at a picture of Ty Cobb if I could talk to Ty Cobb. When Jesus comes, I'm not going to need a picture anymore. And every time we assemble and take this supper, we are by faith celebrating the reality that one day Jesus Christ will come. That is not pie in the sky. That is not some mental attitude to help me deal with the struggles in my life. That is the living truth of the abiding Word of God. Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming. And today as we take this supper, we are celebrating that reality. Let me give you the four. The Lord's Supper 
encourages me to examine the impact of the gospel in my life today. The Lord's Supper encourages me to examine the impact of the gospel. You see, the gospel came, Christ came, to reconcile us to himself and to reconcile us with each other. And that's why Paul says, here writing to this church, you've missed it. You're fighting, you're squabbling, you've missed it. And so he says that when we take the Lord's Supper, we are to examine ourselves. Look at it in verse 28. But a man must examine himself. The word examine is a word that means to put on trial, to test by questioning. What are we to examine? We're to examine all that the gospel accomplished. First of all, we are to examine my fellowship relationship with God. You see, we live here in a world that's still broken and fallen. And even though we love Jesus and He lives in us and is living through us, we stumble, we fall, we get, we get deceived by the enemy in our own heart and flesh. And this is a moment before you take the Lord's Supper to just go before the Lord and say, God, is there anything in my life that's not pleasing to you? Any unconfessed sin? Any unconfessed sin? Anything that's you know, God's shown it, and you just hadn't drug it out in the open and been honest with God about it? Any open rebellion? Maybe something you know it's wrong, but you've just chosen to do it anyway? You've stepped over the authority of the Word of God and you've chosen to live a life of open rebellion against His truth? Any impure relationship? Any unforgiveness towards somebody else? You see, this is a moment for us to ask some really hard questions about our... Listen, none of those things change my relationship with God, but let me tell you what they do. They break my fellowship with God. And this is a moment to have that fellowship restored. 1 John 1, 9 said, if we confess our sins... I love the word confess. It's a word that means to say the same thing, to agree with God about it. God, you're right, I'm wrong. If we confess our sins, He is faithful. He is faithful and just... He's not only faithful to do it, he's just and righteous in doing it. Why? Because of all that Jesus did. He's faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins. What's that? Everything that we confessed and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What's that? The stuff we don't even know about. Examine your fellowship with God. Secondly, we're to examine our fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Paul wrote to these Christians. I'm going to show it to you again. Verse 17 and 18. This is in the New American Standard. Here's what he said. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. Because you come together for the better. Because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. And in part, I believe it. The word division is the Greek word schisma. We get an English word schism from it. It means to to tear. It's a relationship between a brother or sister in Christ that's been torn. 
Here's what Paul says. That has no place at the Lord's table. We need to reconcile and forgive and mend those relationships before coming to the Lord's table. My mentor, Clyde Cranford, wrote it this way. Look at this on the screen. In Christ, the thing that we least deserve is that which we have been most freely given, forgiveness. How then do we dare not forgive those who have wronged us? The person who has sinned against us is no worse a sinner than we. Therefore, we must forgive. This is not to deny or minimize the hurt caused by another sin. Nor is it to excuse that sin. The sin was wrong. Being wronged causes bewilderment and sorrow, especially when the hurt, the one who hurt us is someone we love. Our natural instinct is to question their love for us. But the ultimate question for the Christian is, do I truly love them? With a self-forgetful God kind of love. Our love must be magnanimous, big-hearted, lion-hearted, like the love of Jesus Christ. We must rise deliberately above resentment, bitterness, and pettiness. This is the kind of love that led Jesus to the cross. If we love with this kind of love, remembering all that we've been forgiven, we will forgive others. What do you need to lay down? What hurt? What offense? You say, well, they didn't ask me to forgive them yet. I'm glad God didn't wait to send His Son until I realized I needed it. And it is that same God who lives in you who desires to forgive through you. You say, I can't do that. You're right. You can't, but He can. Prove it. Here it is. He already did. He's already forgiven them. Now He wants to do it through you. So there's why we do this. To remember. To proclaim. To celebrate. To examine. It's not just a little exit ritual. Or something you tag on at the end of a service to make us feel better. That's why we practice this. Now, here's what's about to happen. We're about to practice the Lord's Supper together. We're going to enjoy this moment as a family of faith. We have hosts that are going to be at our tables. Our hosts, you guys and ladies, can go ahead and move into place. We have tables here at the front. We have tables in the corners. We have tables in the back corners. We have tables in the back middle. It's kind of like being on an airplane. Find the exit located nearest to you. No tables better than any other table. They're all the same. We have the bread representing his body. We have the cup representing his blood at all these tables. In just a moment, our worship team, they're going to go ahead and come, move into place. They can go ahead and start playing softly now. In just a moment, we're going to have a moment of worship. And listen to me. It's not time to leave early, okay? If you leave early, you, you've missed everything I've said today. time to remember maybe it'd be helpful to just get open open your Bible and just in these moments of worship just read John 19 the crucifixion account of Jesus just read it just read how he was beaten how he was crucified how he was spit upon how he was mocked 
all because of my sin and your sin. I'm going to pray in a moment, and we're going to begin to move, and four things are going to happen at once. Here's the first thing we're going to do. We're going to all take a moment and examine our heart. Ask those questions. God, anything in my relationship with you? God, anything in my fellowship with my brothers and sisters in Christ? And, and, and give the Holy Spirit a moment to speak to you. We're going to examine our hearts. We're going to drag those things out to the Lord. Maybe there's somebody in this room you need to go to and say, I need you to forgive me before you come to this table. Maybe it's your spouse sitting next to you. Maybe on the way here this morning, you had one of those on the way to church moments. And we're laughing because we all know, right? Hey, preachers have them too. That's why I drive by myself. No, I'm kidding. Maybe you need to turn to your spouse and just say, hey, I need you to forgive me. Maybe you need to go to one of your kids and say, I need you to forgive me. Maybe you'd go to somebody in your small group. What a beautiful demonstration of the gospel when God's people just reconcile. Second thing that's going to happen is intercession. Myself and some of our other pastors are going to be right here at the front. And we're going to open these altars. If God lays something on your heart and you just want to come pray here in an altar, you just come be alone with God. If God has put something on your heart and you just want one of our pastors to pray over you, maybe it's job, health, family, whatever it may be, financial situation, relationship, and you just need prayer, we're here. We're just going to stay here this whole time. We're just going to be praying over those who want to come and be prayed for. Third thing that's going to happen is worship. We're going to worship Jesus through the Lord's Supper. You're going to go to one of these tables. They're going to serve you the bread and the cup. You can take it right there. You can take it back to your seat and take it. You can sit down and wait a few moments and just meditate and then take it. You take it as the Lord leads you. When you're ready, you take it. And the last thing we're going to do is we're going to praise. Our team's going to lead us in praising this great, glorious God who's redeemed us. And so when you've done all the other things and you're ready, you just join in the crescendo of praise that they're going to be leading us in. And we are going to to the best of our ability before God, honor this practice the way Jesus gave gave it to us. We're going to remember. We're going to celebrate. We're going to proclaim. and We're going to examine. So if that makes sense, what we're about to do, just nod your head at me. All right. If you didn't get it, ask the person next to you. They've probably been here before. They'll help you. They'll navigate through it with you. It's going to be a little bit like spiritual chaos. Everybody moving at once. That's all right. God's sovereign. He can see us all at the same time. Move as the Spirit leads you today. Let me say one final thing, and then we're going to do this. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you've never experienced the forgiveness that's been accomplished in His death, burial, and resurrection. Listen, the reason Jesus gave us this and the reason we're doing it today is so you can hear the gospel. That Christ Jesus loves you in spite of what you've done and where you've been. He loves you. 
And he has sovereignly orchestrated this moment today to make his love known to you through the power of the gospel. To say to you that he loved you so much that he came into this world, he died for your sin, and he rose again. And if today you'll turn from your sin by faith and embrace Jesus Christ and surrender to him as the Lord of your life, he will forgive you and save you. And you can leave here different than you came in. You can leave here a loved, accepted child of God. So, if you're here today and you want that, these four pastors are going to be right here at the front. You come to one of these pastors and all you got to say is this, I need Jesus. And we'll have somebody sit down with you and open the Bible and show you how you can begin a personal relationship with God. And then we'll celebrate a little more because you just became a part of the family.